Thank you for tuning in to the Athenaeum podcast, produced and hosted by the Kruger Library at Winona State University. The Athenaeum podcast celebrates the research, discovery, and creative output from our faculty, students, staff, and neighbors in southeast Minnesota. I'm Allison Quam, one of the librarians and co-hosts with fellow librarian Kendall Larson of this episode, 2018 National Poetry Month reading. April is National Poetry Month. To celebrate, Professor James Armstrong and students from his advanced poetry class, English 412, read their original works in a public performance in the Kruger Library and took time to respond to the questions from the audience. Here now is the edited recording of the 2018 National Poetry Month reading. and for you because it's not very intimidating, so it's all good, right? Um, so I will go ahead and kind of introduce them. Are we ready to go? Yeah. All right, well, welcome to our annual English 412 Advanced Poetry Writing Reading in celebration of April, which is National Poetry Month. Uh, the students that you will be uh, listening to have been participating in a uh, a workshop-based class of advanced poetry writing. So every week they bring poems, uh, often many poems, and uh, we sit together at a large circular table and we read the poems and we comment on them. In addition, they have been reading lots of published poetry by uh, poets dead and living to serve as models. Uh, but the, the central focus for this class is really kind of to get the experience of being a professional poet, which I mean, professional poet is one of those terms that's kind of like an oxymoron because all poetry is amateur. There's no money in it. Um, as my teacher back in the old days used to say, poets cannot be bought because nobody's buying. Um, but that's very pleasant, actually, because that means that it is um, an art form that is kind of like it's uh, un untainted by over-professionalization. What is the poetic life? It's getting together in a group of people, reading each other's poems, trying to help each other write better poems, and then encouraging each other to send poems out for publication, which these students are doing right now. They are sending their poems out to journals as part of their class requirement. Um, they also have uh, put together a manuscript, which they're currently editing. So one of the capstone projects for this class is to have a publication, which they edit, uh, format, print, and bind, which then becomes a permanent part of uh, my collection of student books. But also, they make one for themselves, so they have something to take away. And that forms kind of a, a nucleus, often, of, for some of them, that would be their MFA work, let's say if they go on uh, to further poetry education. But at any rate, they have poems that they bring with them as they leave the university and go off into their excitement. So um, one of their requirements is to do a public reading, because of course that's what poets do. And so this is their chance to get up and to read their poems to you. And I hope you enjoy them. 
they asked that I read a poem to kind of put myself out there, and I'm going to read a poem that actually uh, Chris Buttram uh, brought in the other day that I had written and I'd forgotten about, and she said, I love this poem. And I said, well, there's an audience response. So this is for Chris. Spring snow. Cold April, like a bad test result, shakes your faith in solipsism. The moon leers in the sky's windshield. You could be as cold as I am cold. We all live because the world rolls the dice. Still, we want flowers to come up without even asking them. We want our Eden and cellophane. We want to call up pain and cancel our order. We want to call up joy and leave our number. We want swans to come and land on the river, hydroplaning on their ugly feet, because a river without swans is just marketing. Last week, Jesus came and looked around, saw his own shadow on the neglected lawn, and went back up to his heaven of better intentions. Where are the bees? I miss their hum. So, home with a bee in it for April. All right, so we're going to start with Larry. And each poet will introduce him or herself and then read the poems, hopefully slowly as I've instructed them. And at the end, after everyone has read, we'll have, a, uh, we'll have a chance for you, the audience, to ask questions. Larry Shrank, this poem is entitled Six Shirts. The oldest is blue paisley, garnished in yellows, with wide collars reeking of the 70s. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? It worked well with plaid bell-bottoms, now mercifully deceased. A t-shirt from a later time, emblazoned with an M, in maize with a blue background. We were champions of the West. It went with jeans, righteous jeans, more holes than fabric. A white Oxford button-down, peeking out from behind gray herringbone, Quite a find at Goodwill for $10.95. Vest covering ketchup stains from a Manhattan hot dog downed before a first interview. A ratty green shirt from who knows where, spelling of baby spew and Gerber's infant meal, which is probably still stuck to the side of some bowl. An aged man's polo shirt, worn with checked Bermuda shorts white socks and sandals, an anniversary gift from a wife that shouts, you are old. The beautiful blue broadcloth, my children will choose for the viewing, no pants needed, and no one will say, it brings out the blue of my eyes. I'm Emma Cavanaugh, and I will be reading a poem called That One Scene from Bambi Where All the Forest Creatures Fall in Love, a true story. A year ago, I was feeling generous as the earthworms turned and the orchids blossomed and blonde college students unpacked their dusty rollerblades and the Chinook blew into Winona making the small lake heave and cough and dissolve her ice overnight. East Lake didn't freeze last winter, a snafu left by a well-meaning school boy. So that lake was wide awake already, born to spring with open blue eyes. And so too, my mood melted into icy puddles and eager rain boots. My rain boots had bees then, to show my passion for the environment and other important things. I became generous then, opening up my arms and my love, 
I gave love to every elm, every new flower. I kissed cottonwoods on their bright faces. Cottonwoods always desire to be kissed, and ought to be daily. And I kissed you often on your honest face, despite my better judgment. We held hands in the cool spring night. We walked barefoot on the broken sidewalks. You turned my body to you, and I remembered how very generous I was, and danced you to the library, leaking fluorescence out the window and onto the muted night grass, where I gave you the best of my stock, an old, tired willow who wanted only to lie down, only to sink into the forgiving earth. I let you lay your head on my springtime bosom and be overwhelmed by the magnitude of my gaze. We lay parallel to the Mississippi and let the smells of college town wash over us, clouds of weed mingled with laundromat billows. And so I turned to you and kissed your soft neck, wondering if next year's spring would be quite as new. Garofalo, and I will be reading Piece of Rubber. He picks up the worm and places it in my hand, and it squiggles around in my warm palm as I cut my chubby fingers around its rubber body. He takes it back and pinches it with a dirty stone thumbnail until it becomes two, and blood and feces squirt from its thrashing body. And then he pulls out the glinting hook and he pierces the worm again and again and the worm lengthens and stretches towards the heavens. God, why have you forsaken me? He tosses the pierced worm again and again into the still water, and each time he pulls it up, it's a little more pale until it's a limp, soggy piece of rubber, dripping pondweed. And he rips what's left of it and tosses it into the eternal Mississippi, where his crime is concealed and the fish eat the evidence. The next day, I went fishing alone, piercing my hook with a raisin. Hi, I'm Jace Roloff, and I'll be reading a poem today called Curated Caps and Joyous Silence. <clears throat> you're 14, and you're about to be home alone for the weekend. Mom and Dad are taking Cooper with them to, for a visit with family in Wisconsin that you managed to weasel out of. You're not a burnout, as your father calls them, but one day you decide you need some mushrooms. You've read online that they help people connect with a higher power, a connection like the one you've been lying about having for years. Lying to your parents, to your church, to yourself. You've never felt the presence of God, and the way everyone you know talks about it, you feel like it's because you're broken. So you ask a friend's older brother, who deals coke, if he knew where to get some shrooms. And after he finishes laughing at you for calling him that, he says, I'll bring them over Saturday morning, free of charge. Everyone should try them. And besides, you won't need many. It's Saturday morning, and you're still 14 and alone, as Chris's little Ford Ranger barrels up your gravel driveway. Don't take too many, Chris chortles, as he hands you the fold-top sandwich bag full of long-stem, small-capped mushrooms through his rolled-down window. Just pick a few that speak to you, Duder. And you shake a few of the shriveled shoots into the palm of your left hand, you don't know what he means by them speaking to you, but even if he did, you wouldn't be able to hear their voices over the pounding of your heart. You pluck up four from your palm and pop them in your mouth before dropping the rest in the back in the bag, carefully folding its top back over and handing them to Chris. Don't tell anyone you got these from me. And you nod solemnly before the taste hits you and your face contorts into a mask of disgust and you struggle to swallow what tastes 
and feels like a handful of cow shit in your mouth. Chris lets out a bleeding laugh and says, right on, no fear, little dude. I like that. He throws you a jaunty two-fingered salute and throws the truck in reverse before peeling out of your driveway and disappearing down the road. And you head back inside and lay in your bed, staring at the wall and waiting for your trip to begin. And when it does, it's magical and happy, and you cry tears of joy as the light from your window dances on the wall in front of you. You spend hours just sitting there and watching the wall and rolling around in sheets wet with sweat from the heat of the summer day. You see trailing lights and intensified patterns, and it's not what you thought it would be, but it's wonderful and you don't want it to end. But hours later, when you begin to come down, you realize that even though this had been amazing, you were still alone. You had been the whole time. God hadn't revealed himself to you. But for some reason, you're okay with that. My name is Eric Kerman, and I will be reading The Man in the Book. For the man in the book, life is bleak. It's a wonder he keeps charging through crises, only to find another facing him down. If he only knew how to step out of the page and into our world, where you have to go and take time to eat and go to the bathroom, and your mouth starts to smell if you don't brush your teeth. Still, that seems a small price to pay to stop the bullets from constantly whizzing by his head and being blacked out by the big burly men and waking up tied to chairs and being haunted by ghosts and hungered for by vampires and facing unnameable horrors. For him, life is an endless conflict magnified to dizzying degrees, where hints of violence will always hang in the air, and he will always have to check behind the curtains for an unnamed intruder whose finger cradles the trigger of a gun. But he always seems to make it through, little worse for wit. From all the pounding hearts and goose-bumped arms and shivers down his spine, life would be much better for him if he were here, but I'd be sad to see him go. I'm Rennie, and I will be reading Rose. A rose that I remember stuck in that room where the walls were made to keep the radiation out, but all it did is keep you in. I can hear your angered screams of having to be in that room, for no one liking you in that building of outcasts, not even the chronic masturbators that spent their free time looking at anime and cartoons to tug themselves to, give you, O oh Rose, any consideration. Among the misfit toys, you were too misfit, and I regret disliking you for the stupid things you'd say. And as I know, those things are too easy to say. And I regret mocking you, seeing your face, a wrong mix of masculine and feminine. Start to hate yourself turning your red, you red with tears, hiding under your unkept shaggy hair. And I look back, thinking I had it bad, that my future was bleak, and yours, O oh Rose, was even bleaker. For if I was the rock beneath the tree, unable to get more than glimmers of the falling light, you were a root forever doomed to dig yourself deeper under the surface of everyone else's existence. O oh Rose, the undeserving, I regret for not being able to take the pain away. And I know you still suffer somewhere, someplace, where the sun does not shine. And on behalf of the sun and me and everyone else that can smile, 
every day I like to say I'm sorry. Um, I'm Danielle Eberhard, and I am reading a poem titled Time in Slow Motion. Sometimes memory moves in slow motion, like divorce moves in slow motion. Over 16 dragged out hush-hush, bedroom fights, locked doors, not in front of the kids, slow motion. Counted on the finger, should have known hindsight, 20-20 hours now, to years, thickened into one sentence, over the dinner table, no longer in slow motion, but quick images, the waterline of his eyes, or folded hands, evening sun, sinking low, under his words. Your mother and I have something to tell you, a thunderhead, inner chest expanding in black smoke, a silence before the deafening crack of lightning, shattered glass divided between the five of us, a turning point condensed into one question my, other, my mother asked me three months ago. Are you still not over that? And then I also had another poem too, since that was a little bit shorter, but um, the second one's titled Ursa Major. I saw you for the first time since we sold the house. An old friend I used to trace with wax paper, cut out stars on my ceiling. I could find you anywhere, paused, ladling blue into hungry mouths, but I stopped looking for you. And now, time later, outside, my lungs filled with frigid winter air. I lift a finger and follow the dipping lines. Home. Hi, I'm Sajda. Um, I have two short poems. The first one is entitled Saj, Duh. It's a poem about all the things people say to me when I tell them my name. It's uh, like a, this is what they said, this is what they meant. That's how it goes. Um, wait, what is it? Your name is already inconveniencing me. I've never heard that before. All my friends are named Brittany. What does it mean? It should mean something. Where is that from? Where are you from? Did you say Sasha? Please tell me it's just Sasha. That's way too hard to say. It's not worth learning. Name for the order? Amy. And then my other poem is called Picture Mountain. I make jokes about my family growing up in sand, desert people in their natural habitat, and my dad shakes his head. Don't I know there was water right outside the kitchen window? A whole sea, blue. I shake my head. I've never seen that sea, not from the rooftop where my dad would sit. In Italy, the sea was dark, but distance makes the water different. Dad shows me a picture. Grandpa holds my aunt in his arms. Dad and his brothers hold snowballs, proud. Snow in Lebanon? He says, yes, mountain. Thank you. Hi, I'm Claire Bowman, and I have two poems for you guys today. The first one is titled, Never, for Steve. I wish you permanent sunburn on the tip of your nose, muted yellow sweat stains on all of your white tees armpits, watered down Captain and Cokes, no tubs of guacamole left at the grocery store. I wish you milk that's two days too old and stale cookies to gnaw on and dust crumbs on your lap forever. I wish you unfound wallets with all of your credit cards placed perfectly in their umber leather slots for once. I wish you cherry pie stains on your light blue Oxfords at work dinner parties. No more work dinner parties. I wish you women who snore deep into the dark and constantly smell of day-old cucumber-coated sweat. I wish you no more birthday books from your Aunt Jamie 
no holeless socks on your feet, no flavor blasted goldfish cartons, and all the broken bong slides in the world. But I won't wish away her, or her, or her. Always me, always me, no more of me. I don't wish you me. And then the next one is called A Poem to Cope. Being comfortable being uncomfortable is like wearing wet socks with sneakers and ignoring how cold and wet your feet are. Thank you. My name is Kate Ursum, and I have one poem titled Every Summer. Every summer, you return to Estes Park, Colorado, with your mom and two brothers, and let dad play martyr at home to frame mansions for West Des Moines yuppies, mow the lawn, and sulk. The first night after setting up camp at Moraine Park in Rocky Mountain National, you get in mom's blue Jeep and head to the Stanley Hotel and remember The Shining, where Jack Nicholson played a good rendition of your father coaching softball. The huge white colonial revival palace stands out against the sandy mountains and pines. You can't afford to stay here and don't want to anyway. You merely come to sit on a patio and sip Sprite. This drink is your permission to sit with the upper class on a hundred year old porch, three gymnasiums long in your red laced hiking boots. For the price of a Sprite, you can walk into the foyer across the marble floor and go down the wood-paneled stairs to the luxurious bathroom to wash your hands in warm water and dry them with thick paper towels folded on the granite counters. For the price of a Sprite, you can't go upstairs. That's where the real guests stay. But you can walk by the restaurant and listen to forks clink and couples converse and suddenly have an appetite for creamy, buttery food. For the price of a Sprite, you can sit by your mom without blaming her and let your brothers spit ice into glasses without hating them and agree to go fishing before hiking. For the price of a Sprite, you can walk the labyrinth feeling absolutely nude in the absence of mosquitoes and humidity and know that while dad weeds the garden back home, this is your real life. Hello, uh, my name is Cameron Wilson, and I will be reading two poems today. Uh, the first one is Sips of Holy Blood. Right foot, left foot, stumbles across the velvet rug, while trembling hands sway the specks of suit in the shoulder of the dashing darkened cobalt suit coat. Almost to the altar, my steps falter as a thought slips within my mind. Isn't it a sin to drink someone's blood? And the uh, last poem that I have for you is, sorry, get to it. It is called uh, Myself. Two syllables, one perspective, solo mission involving treatment for a single specimen by the man or woman in ownership of their limbs. Alas, the whims of a pronoun befriending me and I. Well, that's all right. Myself, I, and me hold an incentive for our specimen, treating our limbs with whimsical missions involved with pronounced syllables and single perspectives 
owning man and woman through befriendment and alas, pronouns. Thank you. Yes. All right, so I'm going to ask the poets to all come up here and kind of stand in the line, and we'll take some questions from our audience. We apologize. Some of the questions and responses are inaudible. We hope you'll still listen and enjoy. Um, the humor in my poem, at least I know, was definitely derived from the class. And uh, I mean, my poem's not necessarily happy, but it's not sad either. And I write a lot more darker things, and that was kind of a lighthearted one that was definitely influenced by trying to mimic some of everyone else up here writing. I think that we inspire each other to be comfortable and you know experiment. I mean, we're all funny people, I think, at heart, but it comes out more in our writings as we've grown to know each other more. I think we all definitely enjoy writing funny truth songs, and we definitely do write them to be inspired and each other as well. But I still think that it's true. I think we're all true writers. Did you all read a lot of poets this semester? Yeah, who, who were some of the more influential poets that you saw creep up in your own writing? I think um, we read Dante Collins, and I think that was probably one of the main poets that inspired a lot of people because they were very um, experimental with their form, and the kind of subject matter that they talked about was able to kind of transgress into what everyone else was writing about, so I thought that that was a really good work for us. Yeah, actually, Dante Collins... Collins had a poem called the uh, Grief, the Inconvenient Translator, which is what my poem was based off of. It has the same form, but you couldn't see it because I read it. Um, but yeah, that's, oh, he had a lot of helpful prompts, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Dante Collins. Check them, them out. Check them out. <laughs> Others? Liz Lockhead inspired a lot of us, too, especially because she uses a lot of um, specific objects for her imagery, and that I at least saw a lot of that in everyone's poems come up. Mm -hmm. Did you repeat that name again? Liz Lockhead. <laughs> and that's Consensus. pretty interesting because you know one is the Scot Scottish, the second macker of Scotland, uh, Liz Lockhead, and then Dante Collins, who's he's their age and he's from Minneapolis, and so mm -hmm. that's an incredible range. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, sure. I, I told you I was going to ask about five questions. Uh, before being enrolled in a poetry class, did you read poetry for fun? Yeah, a little bit. Very kind little. Of, very little. Yeah. I wrote many well-intended books that I meant to read, and the story to that is that I read the first one from last night. So. <laughs> I may stand out. 
something different. Um, I've read a lot of poetry, but I was 60 when I wrote my first poem in the fall. So that was a change. I would just say practice. Uh, actually, I just have like a goal set in place. Is um, I have a, a poetry book about dogs and like all the like. It's kind of like the author incorporates like how a dog like thinks. And so I feel if I read that and then you know continue what I've been taught in this class is just kind of build off and get that inspiration. Uh, my goal is actually just to continue continue writing uh, as many poems as I can to keep that momentum going. So that's, that's all. I'm going to look for more readers. starting with reading other poetry and then kind of see what they do and try to like start with imitation but then go into your own thing. I think that's what helped me the most with writing poetry is reading poetry. And we keep journals for the class too. We do daily entries and I don't, I don't personally write as much poetry in my journal. I do a lot of like free association, just whatever pops in my head I write on paper and then go back a couple days later and reread kind of like a new book and then Anything that jumps out, like, oh, hey, that's a poem, or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I think what's important is that when you're writing poetry, you're writing what you care about. Because sometimes I try, and I know we all have tried to write things imitating other poets, and if it's not something that's true to us, something that we feel invested in, it doesn't always turn out the way that we would like it to, or the way we would like it to. Hmm. Also, writing for personal experience helps. Like if just like think of like a story or like a moment that happened in your life, take that and just try to incorporate that in a structured poem. It's really fun. Did you discover formal structures like sonnets or billy notes that you hadn't played with as much? <laughs> I've been writing a lot of sonnets lately. <laughs> this and there's a lot of them like E.E. E. Cummings, Dante. He was telling me about yesterday. There's a lot of people I can look to for further playing with the form after the class finishes, and I'm looking forward to that. And something how the poetry classes are sequenced in is that we have to take a lower level poetry class first, and that we kind of practice with form and having something that's more structured, and then once we kind of are more familiar with that in the advanced class, it's kind of like now we'll write whatever you want. So I think it's good to start with structure and then move into what you're comfortable. Yeah, Eric can testify that you have to be careful with the sonnet, though. It can really 
really take over your life. <laughs> it's an obsession at this point. <laughs> You'll break free someday. I had the same obsession. <laughs> you go in and out. You do. It's a beautiful form. So. One of the things that we, uh, that's, I think the central, the central lesson that young poets all need to know is that the best way to start writing a poem is to lower your standards and just write it. Mm -hmm. Because the hardest thing is when you criticize while you're writing, you should never do that. You should just write. And then later on, you know, you can rewrite or whatever, but you should just try and listen to whatever's coming. Lower your standards. <laughs> hey. Uh, this actually goes off of a comment that Kate made about thinking about your reader as you're writing. Do any of you imagine that as you're writing the poem that you're writing it to someone? Like who would be reading this? Who would you give it to? You want, I mean, I have a habit of doing that, but then you kind of block out who the rest of your audience would be. And that one person might be able to understand what you're saying, but it takes away a lot from any potential audience that you would have. With me, my issue is being vague and not saying what I want to say and you know, elaborating on what exactly you want to tell the reader. So sticking to telling one person, I find not helpful at all, but rather thinking of what I want to say to them and then making sure that everyone else will be able to understand the message too. Yeah, a lot of my rough drafts are titled things like letter to so-and-so, letter to blah, blah, blah. And then originally, it's kind of that, and then you have to open it up, but there still is that underlying theme of it's to that person, and I think that, I think readers will still put themselves into that person's shoes, maybe, and like think of a time that is similar. All right. Any other any other questions? Uh, yeah. <laughs> How many of any of you have heard of the poem in text before you put it to paper? Oh. Yeah, I think I think for most poems that I'm writing, I like will see something and then I already will have like a line or two in my head and then I kind of like sketch it out after like writing it down. So I think there's always parts of the poem that exist in my head before I put them on paper. I'll have the broad strokes and kind of a beat that I want to follow, but nothing like fully actualized in my brain before I start writing. It's usually just the first line for me. It's just like that first line is the motivator or the motivation that I need to is take off with it. Yep. <laughs> All right, well thank you for being such a good audience and uh, thank you for thank listening. You. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for listening today. We hope you'll join us next fall for our Anthony M podcast.